We're in Psalm 68 tonight. I know it says Psalm 68, verse 18. That's the the particular platform um, verse that we'll look at containing the doctrine that I'm hopeful to unpack. But I want to read... I think I'll read um, verse, six, uh, verse 1 through, through that verse. Psalm 68. Hear the perfect word of our perfect God. For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As melt wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exalt before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the desert, whose name is the Lord, and exalt before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in the parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee, they flee. She who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver, in its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men. Even among the rebellious also the Lord God may dwell there. Let me throw in verse um, 19 and 20 just because it's so good. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belongs escapes from death. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we do pray, Lord God, that we would hallow your name. Every time we think of your name, certainly every time we speak your name, that it would be with um, holy reverence and awe that we would adore you and find our satisfaction in you um, infinitely above any goodness that we find in the creature, uh, Lord God. Show us your amazing goodness, especially tonight, Lord Jesus, as we see you in your redemptive work. May we know what it is, Lord, that you declared that you are, your name is wonderful, You are a wonderful Christ, and you belong to us, and we belong to you by virtue of the covenant. We pray this in the name above every other name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I think um, we're at um, Psalm 15 in our particular, it's a mini-series that I took as a break after, um, what did we walk through? The book of Jeremiah? 
um, I forget what we looked at last time. So this is a maybe maybe um, four more sermons. We're looking at Christ in the Psalms, and tonight we're looking at a particular aspect of the Lord Jesus, namely his ascension, which is what you see in verse 18. And then I mentioned the other day, and I'm more confirmed in it. I was a little bit on the fence. After the end of this little series, we're going to pick up another series that I'll take, I think will take me maybe 40 weeks, maybe 50 weeks max. And we're going to pick up the book of Numbers in the evening. And you may think it's not an exciting book. It's a really exciting book. (laughs) I promise it's exciting. And it's about God dwelling, tabernacling with his people in the wilderness. We are the people in the wilderness. Um, The apostle Peter says, she who is in Babylon greets you. We are a pilgrim people. That motif very much is part of my own personal ministry. It's It's what I believe in the core of my being. This world is not our home. We truly are just passing through. And that theme that we are in the wilderness as pilgrims uh, runs from the old to the new. Read the book of Hebrews chapter 11. So I, I, it's very encouraging to think that while we remain in Babylon and in the wilderness, our God is always with us, Emmanuel. So um, that, that's the, the, another couple of weeks uh, looking at what we're finding Christ in the psalm. Our purpose tonight, as I say from verse 18, is we're looking at the particular doctrine, if I were to disseminate it down. The primary doctrine is we're looking at the truth, the biblical truth, that our Lord Jesus Christ went from one realm, which is earth, and he ascended from earth, and he went up into heaven, even the highest of heavens, the heaven above the heavens. And the language of the scripture is at the right hand of the Father. And that's what we are looking at. And what we've been keen to see is some, some expression of Christ in the Psalms that's confirmed for us in the New Testament. And if you know your New Testament, and I, I hope you do know your New Testament, there is a, an express usage of Psalm 68, verse 18, and that is given to us by God the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. One of the things I, I, I do love about the Reformed faith, I love non-Reformed Christians. I, I know sometimes folks think, well, the Arminians, are, are they really Christians? And I've mentioned this many, many times before. I didn't know who John Calvin was. When Christ came into my life, I knew that I was a sinner and Christ was my Savior. If you ask me who John Calvin was, I didn't even know who he was. So sometimes in the Reformed camp, we, we forget um, it's Christ who saves, and some of the secondary tertiary things, uh, sometimes we make the primary. But one of the things I, I do love about the Reformed faith is they show the unity and the continuity of the promise of Christ throughout the Bible. It's one of the things that brought me out of uh, a Calvary Chapel into an Orthodox Presbyterian church. They show how the message that Christ is coming is from Genesis to Revelation. And so what I'm about to quote in the book of Ephesians shows the unity of the scripture. There's one message that God will not allow his elect people to to live and die and perish in the state of sin and misery that he has promised to send his redeemer and the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us out of the estate of sin and misery. And for that, Christ enters into that estate for us. 
It's the solidarity of our Savior. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse 4. I'm going to read the extended passage that contains Psalm 68, verse 18. There is one body, one spirit. That's the church. I know we're chopped up, but someday we won't be chopped up. There's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, here's Paul is going to use Psalm 68, verse 18. Therefore, it says, the Psalms say, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That's the ascension of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says Psalm 68, verse 18, is referring to Jesus. So you could buy, there are higher critical theory fellows that will argue with that. Um, I have some, many years ago, I would buy certain commentaries, higher critical commentaries, to think, to see what do these fellows say about the Bible. They can't even say Jesus in the Old Testament. They can't find him there. So I, they're useless to me. It, when the, the Holy Spirit says to Paul, that verse is Jesus Christ, you could bring a world of higher critics who tell me that's not Christ, and I will go with, with, with God. God the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to say in the book of Romans, chapter 2, 3, every man could say one thing is one thing, against God, and God says the conclusion is they're all liars and only I'm true. So when you come here and God says, that's, that's Jesus. Jesus is rising uh, from the dead, ascending to heaven. We can be sure he is. Now he goes on to say, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? That's the estate of humiliation, the descent, and then the, the ascension is his state of exaltation. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And then later, in the, when we get into the body of the sermon, he's going to give gifts. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets to the body of Christ for the building up of the body of Christ until the, re- the return of the Lord Jesus. So we're looking at in Psalm, the Psalm 68, verse 18, the doctrine of Christ's ascension. I mentioned the other day, I'm reading uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, um, English Puritan. I love them. And he has gospel revelation, gospel conversation, gospel this, gospel fear. If you can ever buy these books, sometimes they go out of print. And if you want to make a little money, you buy them. And when they go out of print, they go from $16 to $600. Um, but that's as an aside. I wouldn't sell mine for $600 because they're worth gold. And and I'm reading a book right now, Gospel Revelation. He talks about his name alone is excellent above all the earth. He talks about God being wonderful. And that as I just prayed, another sermon is on Christ being called wonderful. And he talks about the wonders which are in Jesus Christ. And his purpose in that sermon series is to lift our minds and our hearts off of the creature. We're so absorbed with, with creaturely things. Even our kids and our grandkids, we love them madly. And our spouse, we love them madly. And, and we find goodness in them and praise God for that. But he's trying to show us that Christ is infinitely more wonderful and worthy of our love and adoration. 
by virtue of who he is and what he's done. And so when we would come here to look at the ascension of Christ, for uh, everything is for us as our mediator, as our redeemer. This is designed to make us love Christ even more and to make us love Christ even more than our own lives and to want, I'm not using this expression lightly, to die and to see him. Every once in a while, you can, maybe no one in this room, you could wish, I wish I was never born, I wish I was dead because life is so hard and we want to run away and escape life because of the difficulties. I don't mean like that. I mean because Christ so captures our hearts that we can't wait to see him because of how amazing he is. That's what this truth is meant to do for the life of every believer. We, we, the theologians speak of the beatific vision. What's going to happen when we're in the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus? It'll be overwhelming. God says in First uh, Corinthians chapter uh, 2, I think, it hasn't even entered the mind of man how good it will be when we're in the presence of God. That's this one. So th- this is meant, life can be discouraging. I know I'm three quarters Irish, so I tend to, to be melancholy. And I love melancholy. I love minor key songs. I love all of that. I love to have, who doesn't love a good cry? Th- this is meant to encourage and embolden every Christian, not kind of in carnal career, I can do all bootstraps. This is meant that we're not looking to self for our encouragement. We're looking at the one who died and rose again for us. This, he's our courage. So th- this is the courage to face a difficult life. It's this one. And so we're looking at the, the ascension of Jesus. And if you've been with us in the morning series, we're preaching through uh, the book of Acts. We're halfway through, a little bit more than halfway through. We're in Acts chapter 15, 60th sermon this morning. And we see the historical record of the ascension of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day in the fulfillment of scripture, the Bible says. Then he showed himself alive for 40 days to over four or 500 um, brothers and sisters in Christ. They saw him, eyewitnesses, conquer death, conquer the grave, conquer sin, satisfy the father's justice and assuage his wrath and then rise from the dead just as he said he would. And then we have the disciples, the apostles, are standing there. He's telling them to take the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And then he flies away. Jesus Christ literally ascends up into the, the heavens. And as he's passing into the clouds, as he's going up, Christ sends angelic ministers, messengers down. And they say to the guys, why are you looking up? The one that you see going away into the right hand of the Father is the one that's one day going to come back down. And Jesus Christ will come back on some day. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father in our nature, a glorified human nature. Subsequent, the incarnation, the second person of the Godhead became man, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became the Son of Man in time when the Virgin Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit So Christ came down in the incarnation. He goes up after his satisfaction of the Father's justice and wrath. And then the Bible says that he's coming back physically in a glorified body on the last day to judge the living and the dead. So one or two things are going to happen for believers. We will die and go to be with him. It will be glorious. Or we're the last generation and he comes back for us and we'll all dwell with the Lord in a glorious estate. 
because of this one. We don't, the, the, we're not serving a dead Christ. We're not serving a Christ that died and went in the tomb and is in the tomb. He's not in the tomb. God is not a God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He is a living and a true God. And Jesus Christ here, as he ascends into heaven, shows us that he has life in himself. He has the power to lay his life down. He has the power to take it back up because he's God. Christ is not merely a good man, a holy prophet. He's the best of prophets. He's the fulfillment of the prophet promised to Moses in Deuteronomy 18. God says to Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among the brethren. He'll be a Jew. Salvation is of the Jews. So Christ had solidarity with his people. He came to seek the, and to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And, and then Christ says that he will lay down his life. He'll take it up. And we know that the Bible says he ascends to the right hand. This Jesus who has been taken up to you from heaven will come again in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Beloved, I don't think about that enough. I don't think about Christ enough. I don't think about Christ both in his estate of humiliation and certainly his exaltation. We serve here with, with, the, with his ascension. It shows us his, his estate of glory or exaltation. We serve a victorious Christ. And so the Apostle Paul uses a Greek word. It'll come to me at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's been a long week. He calls us super overcomers. Super overcomers. We are super overcomers because this is our Christ. He, he defeats death. He defeats the grave. He ascends into heaven. I want to say a few things when we're looking at the ascended Christ. We use the term Christ. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and I knew certain things about Jesus, certain right things about Jesus, and I didn't know other things. I didn't know the gospel until I was 26. But when we talk about Christ, it's not his last name, like John Shortman. It's not his last name. Uh, and I know I'm probably being overly simple, but let me be overly simple for just a little bit. Uh, Christ is his office. Jesus is his name. Uh, he shall save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, 21 through 23. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is his name, Jesus in Greek, Yeshua, um, but Christ is his office. He is the only mediator between God and man. And Christ means it's the, uh, Christos is the transliteration of, uh, of, of, of um, the Hebrew. It means Messiah. He's the anointed one. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, the anointed one. And that's that anointed by God. God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, the voice comes out of heaven. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon him like the oil coming down on the head of the high priest and anoints Christ for public service. Christ is our Messiah, is our public representative. We're either represented before God by either one or two men, either the first Adam or the second Adam. This is a Romans chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 15 as well. So Christ is a public person. When we talk about Jesus, he has two natures in, in one person. He is fully God, God of gods, Lord of lords. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So is the eternal Son of God. This is, a, this is a John 1, 1 through 14. John 1, 1. 
in the, the Word was with God and the Word was God. He's the eternal Son of God. And then John 1, 14 through 18, but he, he's begotten. And he, he becomes the Son of Man in time. He always was the Son of God, the second person of the divine trinity. But he becomes Messiah when he enters into, we read somewhere, he was born under law, Galatians 4, 4. But for us, to rescue us, where, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Christ, will be successful. He'll be victorious. And so he comes, he enters into our condition. And when he enters into our condition, as the Redeemer. So when we're looking at Christ, it's always in reference to redemption, which is a fancy word for salvation or deliverance. He's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He's the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. I mentioned I was a Roman Catholic, but previously. If you ever go look at Roman Catholicism, crush the head of the serpent, mash in Google pictures, and it will show the Virgin Mary standing on the head of the, of the serpent. And sometimes she'll be holding baby Jesus. It's not the Virgin Mary crushing the head of the serpent. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the seed of the woman. Um, he is the fulfillment of the virgin shall be with child, Isaiah 7. And here he comes. In Romans 16, he's the one who crushes the serpent. Not Mary, not us, Christ. Christ binds the strong man. Christ will take the cap- our captor captive because he's God come in the flesh. But we're always in reference to salvation. And then we're unpeeling that onion of salvation. It's not just get saved. I don't mean to pick on anybody. Get saved as if that doctrine of salvation is a quickie quick. We could live to as old as Methuselah and we will never plunder, we will never, uh, we will never um, plumb the depths of the wonder of what it means to be saved by this one. But that's who we're looking at. We're looking at the, the Christ who was in this estate of humiliation. Now he enters into the estate of exaltation, which is what the, the ascension is part of. Christ humiliated himself, entered into the estate of sin and misery to save us. It's, he came for the bride, and he suffered and died for the bride. But, the, but there was a terminus, there was an end to his suffering and his sin-bearing. And, and then he enters into a different estate. Beloved, that's the same scheme for all of us. I'll be 59 in a, a pretty quick here in, in April. And I, I, I never thought I would live to 59. My dad made it to 56. My grandfather made it to 47. So I always thought that I would never make it. So I, I, I do tend to look and think, wow, I, I'm almost 60. And so, but, but then you start to think, where in this scheme am I in my life? Um, life can be a difficult experience. It can be filled with many, many wonderful things, but many, many sad things. Um, this time that we live in, um, this is our state of, of, of humiliation. This is the most suffering we're ever going to have as Christians. And some Christians have some very, very hard roads to uh, plow in particular seasons of our lives. But there's an end to it. There was an end to Christ's state of humiliation. If you are in a season of suffering, and I'm not saying this in a bad way or a morose way, it's only going to last for a time. It's only going to last for a time. My mother, I, I don't know ultimately what she believed, 
Um, but she used to have a saying, maybe it was because she just raised poor and had a hard life. She used to say, in a hundred years, what will this matter? In a hundred years, what will it matter? Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, in 100 years, we're going to be with him. Everyone in this room. So our suffering, like Christ's suffering, has a terminus, it has an end, which is very encouraging. He enters into this state, a state of exaltation for us. We will also, because of him, go from cross-bearing to crown-wearing, humiliation to exaltation. I know we sometimes try to bypass that scheme there's a guy on the internet, he's, he looks like he has the body of, I don't know, he's super duper muscular, and he's like 75 years old. And so he takes his shirt off, and he looks completely like this, but when you look at his face, you're thinking he's 75 years old. Well, he's doing all these pills and potions and all the stuff. You can do whatever you want. The Bible says in Psalm 90, you're not making it above 120. I don't care who you are. You can take as many pills as, as they can make. <laughs> You're never going to beat the scheme. Not in this life. For Christians, we shouldn't be that silly. And we shouldn't want to live here forever. Who would want to live here forever and ever in this estate anyways? So, humiliation, exaltation. Let me read to you how we summarize Christ's estate of exaltation, which we're looking at. This is from our secondary standards, the larger catechism. What was the estate of Christ's exaltation? And here's the answer. The state of Christ's exaltation comprehends, includes, his resurrection. So it, it, it begins when he rises from the dead. His ascension, his sitting at the right hand of the Father, and his coming again to judge the world. As I mentioned, we're just looking and unpacking this particular doctrine that Christ ascends into heaven. I've mentioned this a, a lot. The Christian religion, it, how I understand the Bible and you may differ with me, but this is how I understand it. The Christian religion fundamentally or primarily is an otherworldly religion. It's not, it's not that it doesn't have application for this life. It certainly does. But the, the ultimate focus of the Christian religion is not how to have your best life now. I, am I correct with that? If I read Hebrews 11, 1 through 40, it's pilgrim living but we're going to the celestial city, to quote John Bunyan. That's where we're going. We're going to meet the king. And so the focus of, of, the, of, the, of the Christian faith of the Bible is we live now trusting in Christ, but setting our minds on things above. And so we, we are looking at uh, uh, the faith which calls us to consider the next life after this life not only is it otherworldly, it's heavenly focused. Christ ascends up into heaven to lift our affections into heaven. The reason we get so tenacious about leaving this, this life is we make this life our heaven. We, we make this life our heaven. I know certain brothers who hold a certain eschatological position, they think they're going to turn America into heaven. If I have read the Bible correctly, Second Peter chapter 3, yeah. I think, I know, the elements are going to burn with fire and heat, even this beloved place that I love. So it's not heaven. Heaven is heaven. And not only is the Christian religion one of an otherworldly focus, um, it's a triumphalistic religion. Biblical Christianity is a triumphalistic religion. And you may think, well, Pastor, have you slipped a gear? 
aren't you thinking about another religion that uses the sword to so-called convert people? No. Christian biblical triumphalism is not fleshly, unbelieving, mannish, Satan-ish triumphalism. The triumphalism of man is, you either convert or I will kill you with a sword. That's not the Bible. The triumphalism of Christ is, I'll die for your sins and rise again for your justification, and I'll call my people to myself, and no one can snatch you out of my hand. I am the strong man, says Christ. I will bind the devil. I will do it. Not with a, not with a sword of steel, but he, remember Pontius Pilate doesn't understand it. He says, you're a king, and Jesus says, I am a king. But I'm not a king like you think. If I were a king like you think, my, my, my people would be fighting you with swords. But I'm not that kind of king. So when we look at the triumphalism of Christ, as we see in the ascension of Christ as our risen, victorious warrior king, we have to understand triumphalism rightly. Um, people will wade through oceans of blood for, for a silk ribbon in a, in, a, in, a, in a tin star, and they won't cross the street to talk to anybody about Jesus. We're not talking about that. So can you find someone that will fight me tooth and nail and die for the sake of some other earthly political cause? Yes. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the triumphalism of Christ. Christ defeats the devil for us. Christ satisfies the Father for us to, to free us. I, I commit to your reading chapter 20 of our, our Confession of Faith, talking on the liberties that Christ procures for us, particularly um, paragraph 1. So we're looking at the, the, the revelation of victory. And I, I don't mean it not only in a triumphalistic earthly sense, but also there are well-meaning Christians that use the phrase victory. I used to, I used to go to church with these guys. It's, it's too earthly. It's too mannish. It's too self-focused. I'm going to declare victory over this sickness. I'm going to go declare victory over my poverty. I don't mean like that. I mean victory over Satan, victory over sin, satisfaction of the broken covenant. That's victory. That's what Christ does. And he's teaching us all of these things in his ascension up into um, heaven. So there are two things in Psalm 68, excuse me, that manifest the victory of our Savior. There are two elements. Look at, look at verses um, uh, 1 through 3. These are two things that the ascension of Christ, proving the victory of Christ, that are meant to engender confidence in the lives of the believers, and I would say terror in the life of the unbeliever, the enemies will be put down and the friends will be gathered in, essentially, is what we see uh, there. When we are looking at the ascension of Jesus, we're looking at the victory of Christ. And those two things, that our Christ, in this capacity, we mentioned that he's the anointed one, he's the mediator, he's anointed to office. And we speak of Christ's threefold office. He's our prophet, he's our priest, and what else is he? Prophet, priest, and what? King, amen to that. We're looking at an aspect here of Christ's kingship. Christ is not president. Christ is not a member of parliament. Christ is not a Democrat. Christ is not a libertarian. Christ is not a Republican. Christ is a king. He's a sovereign king. The closest that would come, I can't even, an oriental king. 
And when I mean oriental, the power of life and death, what he says goes. That's what I mean. An ancient Near Eastern oriental king would be the best that we could conjure up. And even that's not even close. He's king. We're looking at here an aspect of the kingship of our Jesus is king. Not just king over the church, he's king over the world. Ontologically, is at, at, in reference to his deity as the second person of the Godhead, he's king over the whole world. But in reference to his, his work as redeemer, he's particularly king over the church. Jesus is king over the church. The Pope is not the Pope over the church. Christ is the, the Pope. He's the king. He's the only head of his church. And he's for us. And because he's for us, he's against his enemies. I was a pacifist when I was first converted. When was I converted? 26. And I became a pacifist right away. I thought the turn the other cheek passage taught pacifism until I met an old man. And he taught me, no, that, that's not referring to something that requires self-defense. If someone was going to hurt your wife, this is not a slap in the, che- the cheek. This is not just some kind of dishonorable thing. So he taught me a more excellent way, but I was a pacifist. And the thing that convinced me against, I thought pacifism was biblical. The thing that convinced me was reading how our catechism treats or exegetes or opens up and explains uh, the, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. The, thou shalt not kill. If a commandment is stated in the negative, the positive is implied. If you can't take away life unlawfully, the, the positive duty is also implied that you have to protect life through lawful means. And a light bulb went on my head. If someone came in my house to hurt my wife, would I try to stop them with physical force? Yes. Even to the point of taking their life? Yes. Do, will I do that because I, hurt, I hate them? No, it's because I love her. And so when we come here and we're looking at Christ for us, that means he's against his enemies who are against us. Does that make sense? He's going to put them down to save us. This is why people don't understand the flood. This is why they don't understand uh, God delivering his people from Israel. How did God... Eight people he put on a boat. He said to, 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 to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, I, you find favor in my sight. How, he saved the, the eight by putting down the rest. He saved Israel by putting down Egypt. But it wasn't so much that he hated the enemy as he loves his people. Our Christ is victorious king. And he shows us that in his ascension. And he's telling his church on the earth, we are prone to put our trust in earthly princes. We are. We are. Whoever is going to be the next whatever running, he's going to promise and promise and promise and promise. He's not the king. He's not the king. J.C. Rowell, my favorite devotional writer, says there's one political maxim I live by. Christ is a king. He's on his throne. That's my political view. Christ is king. He's on his throne. Do I say we, we shouldn't engage in the other things? Of course we should. We still have our earthly citizenship. But our eye is always on this one. And this ascended one says, I am going to put down all of the enemies and I'm going to gather in all of my friends because of, because of who he is. Does that make sense? That's kind of what we're looking at. Notice the language that God the Holy Spirit 
inspires the penman to use its military language. This is something that I had a hard time with as a pacifist. The Bible presents the God of the Bible in, in many instances, even the Christ of the Bible, with military language. And we live in, I, I hate to use this phrase, we, we live in feminine times. There is a, a writer, he's in glory now. He has a treatise called The Effeminate Church, The Church Effeminate. And I'm not, I don't mean to... The church has turned away from biblical Christianity and we make our own form of Christianity. This is a book of Colossians towards the end of the chapter. God does not like man-made Christianity. God doesn't want us to have a Christianity that is not Bible Christianity. So if the Bible says Christ is this victorious warrior king with military language, that's what he is. But that's offensive to the flesh of even people that profess to be Christians. And so what they make Jesus is to be is all this nebulous, spineless, squishy, lovey, lovey. Am I, am I right with that? I am right with that. But that's not the Christ of the Bible. When we look at the ascension of Christ, the ascension of Christ taking captive cap, captives captive, it's the language of a, a warrior king who is victorious. That's the language of Scripture. You know, you say, well, I don't like that. You should like that. Christ came. Christ is the fighting Christ. He's the fighting king. He's the overcoming fighting king. He came for a battle. Read 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the kingdom of the devil. He came to destroy the devil. Jesus didn't come to say, hi, I'm a really nice, sympathetic guy and everything's great and have your best life. He came to do battle. And so when we come here, I don't mean we walk around like Vince Lombardi, these kind of things. But, but, But our Christ is depicted in the scripture. Read Psalm 2. At Christmas, Handel's Messiah. Read Psalm, read Psalm 2. The kings of the earth are rattling their sabers at Christ, and God does what? I laugh at you. Kiss the sun, lest he turn and destroy you in his wrath. Read Psalm 110. He's going to lift up his head from the brook, and he's the king and the priest after he's destroyed all of his enemies for us. That's what the ascension teaches. You say, well, pastor, you're quoting Old Testament. I can quote the New Testament. Read Psalm 14. Read Psalm 119. The winepress of whose wrath? Christ's. The wrath of God Almighty. And you think, well, that's terrible. It is terrible for the enemies of of Christ and for the enemies of Christ's people. But beloved, it is glorious good news that Jesus Christ says, I am the strong man. He, he, he comes. You remember when Christ came into the temple, uh, Luke 4, and he stands up and he reads Isaiah 61. And I want to say he reads verse 1 to 2, 2a. I don't think he reads 2, 2b. But he says, I've come to set the what free? The captives. The reason people don't want this warrior fighting, overcoming Christ is they don't believe the depth of the problem they have before God. They don't believe it. They think they need a little therapy. They think they need a little medicine, a little twink, tweaking, a little money. They don't think that they are bound over to hell. 
They don't think that they're under the dominion of the devil. They don't think the broken law of God is against them. They don't think that. But if you believe it, then this is the Christ that we fly to. Amen. And our Christ overcame. And the captives that we see him taking captives, he sets the captives free. And Spurgeon has a wonderful comment. We become the willing slaves. We were slaves of the devil unwillingly and unwittingly. And then we become willing slaves of Jesus Christ, which is real freedom. We are his captives. And then if you know the Ephesians, in, 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 in Psalms, he receives the, the gifts. He receives the captives. And then the use of the Psalm in Ephesians 4, he gives gifts. He, he, he snatches us from the captivity of the devil, and then he gives us back to the church as, as his gifts to extend his kingdom. And the Bible says he's going to come back on the last day. And we, with, the, with the creed we say, and his kingdom will have no end. Beloved, if you are going through a difficult season, um, look to this Christ. And if, if you are struggling with melancholy or darkness, um, even to the point of being um, despair, beloved, you, you have been purchased by this victorious Jesus. When he ascends into heaven, what is he doing there? He's preparing a place for you. You serve the risen, super overcoming Christ. And where he is, we as his children will be also. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.